And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many of you have uh, ever, ever had the recurring dream where you're in college and uh, all of a sudden in the dream you're at the end of the semester and you realize that you signed up for a class that you never went to and you begin to panic because you know that the papers are due and the test is next week and, and you're just in this frenzy and then about that time you wake up and you go, Whew, it was just a dream. You've ever had that? I had that multiple times when I was in college. I haven't had it for 35 years now, thank goodness. But let me ask you this, what if that dream were true? And what if it wasn't just a college exam, but the end of the age, and the examiner was the Lord? You realize too late that you're, you have to give an account to Him, and you haven't been doing what you're supposed to have been doing. Now, that would be the type of nightmare that you wouldn't want because you probably would not wake up from it. Jesus tells this parable to warn us about the upcoming exam. It's going to hit every one of us in here. Nobody is exempt. He told this parable because the disciples and others who were with him, they were headed towards Jerusalem, they had the wrong notion that he would institute the kingdom of God immediately. And they didn't realize that he first must suffer, die, be raised from the dead, uh, ascend to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, and that many years would go by before he returned to establish his kingdom. Jesus wanted to let his hearers know uh, what they were supposed to be doing in his absence. They were not supposed to sit around waiting for him to return. Rather, they were to actively be doing business for him with what he had entrusted to them. And the day will certainly come when he will return. And at that time, each servant must give an account for what he has done. Now, because we will all give an account one day, we must faithfully do business with what the master has given to us until he returns. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you here with a message of stewardship of some sort, of responsibility, Father, that is given to all of us who name the name of Jesus. So I pray that you would help us to see it, to understand it, to embrace it, Father, to make changes where changes are necessary. Encourage us with your word that we may be more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, Jericho was about a six-hour walk, 18 miles or so from Jerusalem. That's about here, from here to the post office, the main post office there on, on, on what is it, Orange. That's about 18 miles. So that, that was a, a pretty much a full day's walk. Now, in the case of Jesus' parable, he is the nobleman who goes to a distant country to receive a kingdom. Now, he's referring to his departure into heaven, and that's after his death and resurrection, where he would sit at the Father's right hand until the Father has made all of his enemies his footstool. Now, during his time away, he entrusts to each servant one mina. That was about four months' wages. So it was a significant amount of money. Each servant gets the same amount. Now, this parable should not be confused with the one that we see in Matthew 25, and that's talking about the talents. In that parable, the owner is a businessman, and he gives three different slaves. One he gives five, one he gives two, and one he gives one talent to 
put to use in his absence. Now, a talent was worth about 60 minas or about 20 years worth of wages. So uh, the amount was considerably more. Here, the owner is a nobleman who gives 10 servants one mina each. And when he returns, he simply asks for an accounting. Well, we're only told the responses of three of the servants. And after he's, after he's dealt with these three, he proceeds to judge the citizens who didn't want him to rule over them. So what can we learn from this parable? Well, number one, the kingdom is not here in its full and final form. This isn't the first time we've seen this. Jesus has talked about this multiple times. He's correcting the false view of the disciples and others that the kingdom of God would be instituted in its full form when Jesus got to Jerusalem. That was their understanding. When he gets here, he's going to set up his kingdom. Well, he's showing them that there is both a present form of the kingdom while the king is away, but there's also a future full sense of the kingdom when the king returns. Now, Jesus has already spoken of the present sense of the kingdom, that it is in their midst because he, the king, is in their midst. So if the king is here, the kingdom is here. That's in one sense. But the, the disciples, they really struggle with the idea that the consummation of the kingdom would be delayed. Even after the resurrection, in Acts chapter 1, they asked Jesus, Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They're looking for it now. Well, the disciples finally came to clarity this in Acts chapter 3. But at this point, especially in the parable, they, 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 they didn't yet understand. They fully, fully expected Jesus to establish his reign over Israel in the immediate future. And Jesus simply wanted them to understand that there would be a delay. In the future, the king will return and he will rule in power and glory. In the meantime, he is still king, although he is absent. He wants his followers to know what they should be doing during that time. Now, for us, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended. Well, rather than sitting around waiting for the king to return, they should be doing business for him, actively working to bring people under his lordship. Well, the second thing I want you to see is that the master has entrusted to all of us the same resource uh, for us to use. Now, again, we've got to distinguish between this parable and the parable of the talents. That teaches a, the parable of the talents teaches a different lesson. That parable shows that different service, uh, servants have been give, given differing gifts. And the danger is for the person with the relatively small gift, um, gifting ability to not do anything. The parable we're looking at today shows that every servant has been given the same gift and that the difference in results is not due to their gifting, but to differing, differing levels of diligence in the use of that same gift that they all received. Now, the fact that, that, that each of the ten servants received a mina, that shows us that it was not just the twelve apostles who were in view here, but rather God's servants in general. So the parable is not directed just to those in leadership, but to all of Christ's subjects. The fact that each was given the same amount shows that it's not referring to differing gifts, but to something that all followers of Christ share in common. And I believe what it's talking about here is the Word of God, and in particular, the central message of that Word, the Gospel. We've all been gave, given the same Gospel, and we're told to do business with it 
for our king during his absence. Now, if you do not possess the gospel as your own, you're not a Christian. I don't care how often you come to church. A Christian has heard the gospel news that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners and has personally believed that good news as his own. In other words, a true Christian doesn't just believe in a general sense that Jesus is Savior. No, he believes in a personal sense that Jesus is my Savior, that he died for my sins. If I were to stand before God one day and he, were, and he asked me, uh, why should I let you into heaven? My only plea will be because I have trusted in your son Jesus who shed his blood on the cross for my sins. Salvation is a very personal thing. And if you personally believe that message, then the gospel has been entrusted to you. It's that mina that Jesus is talking about. And it's not been entrusted to you just to treasure for yourself. Rather, number three, we wait for the master's return, or while we wait for the master's return, we do business in, with the gospel in what is generally a very hostile environment. The servants are to use the master's mina in, in, in the face of citizens who angrily protest, we do not want this man to reign over us. Well, in this parable, this is a reference to the Jewish nation. They were rejecting Jesus as their king. Do you remember they protested to Pilate? We have no king but Caesar. But beyond that, it also refers to the evil world that is hostile towards God and does not want to submit to Jesus as Lord and King. Uh, it's in just such a hostile world that we're to do business with the gospel, multiplying it by investing it in people's lives. Now, clearly, there's always a risk in doing business in a hostile environment. But the greater risk is not to do business at all, but to carefully cover up the gospel. Remember, hide it under a bushel, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, and to not put it on that light stand so that it shows. It's, it, we're wrapping up that gospel in that handkerchief, not employing it for his purposes. Now, it's also implied here what is clearly taught elsewhere that the power of the gospel is in the message itself. It's not in the skill of the messenger. Does that make sense? It's the message, not the messenger. The servants don't say, Master, my great business skill has multiplied your mina. No, what do they say? Your mina has made ten minas. Master, your mina has made five minas. The power is in the minas, not in the servants. The power in, of the gospel is not in slick salesmanship. It's in God's power working through His Word. Paul explicitly addresses this in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. Not the way we deliver it. The power is in the gospel itself. He says, to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So the power of the gospel is in the gospel. So all of this leads me to ask, do you see yourself in business for the master with the gospel? He's entrusted the gospel message to every believer and he said, do business with this until I come back. So are you doing business with the gospel for the master? Are you using the good news of Christ as Savior to bring others into his kingdom under his lordship? 
That's the question the Lord would have us consider by this parable. If you don't see yourself as a gospel entrepreneur, you won't be thinking about ways to multiply the resources for His purposes. The Apostle Paul saw this as his aim in life. He states the governing purpose of his life in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 23. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. We all should see ourselves in the gospel business, using Jesus' capital to make a profit for him in his absence. If we're not thinking that way, we should probably change our thinking because, number four, when the master returns, given, granted, we don't know when that's going to be, but when the master returns, we will all be called to give an account of our business. The delay in the master's return doesn't mean that he will not return. Scripture is quite clear his return is certain, though for the moment delayed. We don't know how long delayed. It could be in the next 30 seconds. How glorious would that be? Right? But the group, this group of dis, uh, disgruntled citizens in the parable, they didn't want him to return at all, much less uh, to return as king. But clearly, when he returns, it will be as king. He will have full power and authority to reign. Now, he calls his servants together to give an account of the business that they have conducted uh, in his absence. And he orders his enemies to be brought and executed in his presence. So three groups we see here that must give an account. And I'll tell you right now, you belong to one of these three groups. Okay. First, we're going to look at the servants who have done business for him. They're going to be rewarded according to their faithfulness. Now, only three of the ten servants are mentioned, and these three fall into two categories. Two, they've made various amounts with the king's money, and one who has not done anything with it at all. So here, in this first part, we're looking at the two who traded and invested the money in such a way that it multiplied. The first got a tenfold profit, turning the one mina into ten mina. Now, we're to not take this in the literal sense as if he led ten people to Christ. Rather, the meaning is that he has taken what the master entrusted to him and he's used it well. He's multiplied it many times over in the master's service. And the master commends him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be in authority over ten cities. Again, we, we need not understand this literally, that he'll be over ten cities in the millennium. That is possible, although. The main idea is that the servant's responsible use of the master's mina, it's going to be rewarded with increased responsibility in the future kingdom. So the servant has shown himself faithful in this little thing. He's thus going to be faithful in much. And so much, when the master returned, is going to be given to him. Now, the master, if you'll notice, doesn't directly praise the second servant. But he does reward him proportionally to his success in this enterprise. His mina has earned five more, so he puts him in charge of five cities. Now, some take the, 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 the lack of commendation. He doesn't say, well done, good and faithful slave number two. Some take that to mean uh, it, or, or look at it as some sort of silent censure. Perhaps if the servant had worked more diligently, he could have made ten minas instead of five. 
But the fact that he receives a proportionate reward seems to indicate that he had also done well. And maybe the difference in results was due to factors beyond his control. Now we can learn several things about the doctrine of rewards from the way the master rewards these two servants. First thing I want you to see, we have to understand that, yes, salvation is by grace alone. Think about it. Where did these servants get that mina from? They got it from the master. He gave it to them. He didn't know it to them. They were slaves. So that's grace. Salvation is by grace. But rewards will be proportionate to our service. Here's how Matthew Henry explains. This intimates or suggests that there are degrees of glory in heaven. Every vessel will be alike full, but not alike large. Do you understand that? The way he's thinking. Every, every, every vessel will be alike full, but not alike large. And the degrees of glory there will be according to the degrees of usefulness here. End quote. So in one sense, the rewards are proportionate to the service, right? One brought back ten, so he's put over ten cities. One brought back five, so he's put over five cities. But in another sense, the rewards far exceed the service. Earning a mina is a small thing according to verse uh, 17. But the reward is to be over an entire city. That's a rather large responsibility. So... We also learned that the servant service here was a test. It was a preparation for their future service in the kingdom. The master tested them, tested them to see if they'd be faithful in a little thing. The performance of their duties in this little thing was preparing them to graduate from servants, right, to rulers, but still under the same master. Well, we also learn uh, that the Lord notices all the service of His servants and that all we do for Him will be richly rewarded. Sometimes when we serve in the church and no one seems to notice what we've done, uh, we get angry, we get depressed, right? Even more galling is when someone else gets the credit for what all that we've done. Now, if you're thinking that way, you're thinking the wrong way. Uh, we shouldn't be serving for the recognition of men to begin with. But even so, we shouldn't worry. The Lord duly notes the accomplishments of each of His servants and rewards them accordingly. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So each of us should be laboring so that one day we will hear the Lord Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful slave. That is... That, that, that's going to be grand. That's going to be the best. And everything above that will simply be grace upon grace. So that's the first group, those who are faithful. The second group are the servants who have not done business for him uh, with this mina, and they're going to be stripped of everything that they have. The first two slaves made a profit with the master's mina, but the third slave simply wrapped it up in a handkerchief and returned it intact to the master. Now, he offers the excuse that he feared the master, knowing that he was an exacting man, a hard man, who takes up what he did not lay down, who reaps where he did not sow. The master chastises the slave for not at least putting the money in the bank so that it would have earned interest. And then he judges uh, this slave by his own words. He takes that single mina that he had given him when he left, 
And he takes it from him and he gives it to the man who had earned ten minas. And the bystanders, they, they express some surprise. So he explains the principle, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. The one who has proven himself faithful will have more opportunities for faithfulness. But the one who has been unfaithful will be stripped of all his responsibilities. The question here is, does this unfaithful servant, servant number three, represent a true believer who loses his rewards? In other words, he's saved, yet as through fire. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He acknowledges that some, yes, are going to enter heaven and it's, going, it's like the flames are going to be lapping at their feet as they go up. They will have no rewards, but they will be saved. Is that what this is talking about? Or is he a person who professes to know God, but by his deeds he denies him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed? That's what Paul talks about in, in Titus 1.16. It seems to me that this servant, this third servant, does not know the king. He wrongly thinks of him as a harsh man when in fact he is very generous to his faithful slaves. The third servant represents people who are related to the king in that they are associated with the community and they have some responsibility in it. Nevertheless, their attitude, it shows that they do not see God as gracious and that they have not really trusted him. Such people are left uh, with nothing at the judgment. They are sent to outer darkness because they never really trusted or knew God. J.C. Ryle notes, Hard thoughts of God are a common mark of all unconverted people. Just think about that. Hard thoughts of God are a common mark of unconverted people. They first misrepresent Him and then try to excuse themselves for not lo loving and serving Him. That's exactly what that third servant did. So this third servant, he represents those in the church who know the gospel and should believe it. But they're indifferent. They're unconcerned about the master's purpose and kingdom. As a result, they're not using the opportunities that he has given them to further his kingdom. They're actually living for themselves and making up excuses as to why they are not serving the king. Well, the third group that we have to be aware of are the rebellious. And they're going to be punished with eternal separation from the king. The king says, but these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. They hated the king. They actively opposed his reign. But their opposition didn't thwart his being installed as king. Now, while in the parable, the penalty is execution, that's mild compared to the eternal judgment that will come upon those who have actively opposed the lordship of Christ. They will experience eternal torment away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. They'll get what they sought after in the first place, separation from the king. We don't want you to be king over us. Okay, fine. But it's not just separation, it's eternal separation. I want you to note that the issue is the lordship of Christ. These rebels didn't want him reigning over them. 
Those who have truly believed in Christ have subjected themselves fully to His rightful lordship. Those who reject Christ's lordship will face His fearful and final judgment. There's really no category for those who are truly saved but who opt out of making Jesus their Lord. That's not an option. There's no neutral position with regard to Jesus. So each of us is in one of these three categories. I hope that none here is actively opposing uh, his right to be king. If you are, huh, repent quickly before he comes and you face his awful wrath. There may be some here who profess to know him, but you're simply living for yourself. You're not doing business for the king. You need to begin using the gospel in the master's business. Now, some are faithfully serving him. And if you are, you can expect him to richly reward you when he returns. The world, um, Paul uses a couple different words uh, to describe the relationship between the world and God. Hostility is one of them. Okay? Hostility. The other is enmity. Enmity. Uh, a third that he uses is separated. Separated from God. And that's what's going on here. Because the world is at enmity with God, is hostile towards God, is separated from God, they're going to scorn us. They're going to reject the message that we have to offer. Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. But understand, we're not doing this for ourselves. We're not keeping track of how many mina we've accumulated because we haven't accumulated anything. It's God's doing. But we're called to be faithful. And we're doing it for Him. You'll never lose if you faithfully do business for Jesus. And when He comes, guess what? He will reward you for everything that you have done for His kingdom. Well, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you just for the blessing of your word. Uh, Lord, it, it does uh, show us what is right, what is wrong. It shows us uh, how to correct our behavior. It shows us what true righteousness is. Father, we thank you for the gift of it. And today we've just been challenged to understand that this mina represents the gospel. And if we are a believer, we have been given the same gospel that Peter, James, and John were given. And Father, that, that gospel is basically because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can have life in His name. So God, do that work in our hearts that would show us which one of these three groups we belong to. Do it for Your honor and for Your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, you're in one of those three groups. I'll go backwards uh, this time. Uh, are you hostile towards God? Are you separated from God? And you know it. Uh, the end, the outcome for that is not good. <laughs> and, and we understand through other scripture that the way to do it is to, rem to remedy it through Christ. Jesus told his disciples the night before his crucif uh, crucifixion, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So if you know that you're separated from God, you know that that enmity is still there, that hostility. God may be calling you today through His Holy Spirit. Don't run from that. Run to Him. Uh, ask God to forgive your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. 
and you will be saved. You'll be a child of God. Maybe you're out there and you think you're in the kingdom because you come to church regularly, because you, you're basically just a good person. And in the back of your mind, you haven't given a lot of thought, but you just have this general notion that, well, yeah, I've lived a good life. I've done the best I can. So, of course, God's going to accept me on that day. And Bible is quite clear. That's not what's going to happen. You will be rejected eternally. There's only one way to God. I just told you. It's through Christ. You have to give your life to Him. Trust Him with your eternal salvation. Maybe you need to do that today as well. Hopefully, we're in that, that last category of the faithful servants who have been doing business for Christ, for His kingdom, for His purposes. And when the Lord returns, we will be rewarded. I hope that's you. And, if, and if, you, if you know you're a Christian, but you haven't been in that, you know, you don't see yourself as that gospel entrepreneur, I hope that this kind of just pricks your soul and you can say, hmm, all right, God, what does it mean for me? How do I get in the gospel business of sharing your goodness with others? That's what we're called to do as believers. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.